Hear these words from Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Father, would you meet us here in this place? Would you open our eyes and our hearts to behold things that are true, to hear from you what is true indeed? So use this these moments for your purposes in our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we are, uh, <clears throat> we meaning Nate, and uh, who is traveling, preaching in uh, Shelbyville this morning. Uh, not sure what he's preaching there, but here, what we've, where we've been and where we are, is uh, several weeks in this little section that you just heard from Acts chapter 2. Asking the question, when God moves, what would we expect to happen? Or another way of saying that is, what would God do with us? Uh, because that's where we, how we come to this, asking God to meet us. To We, we come with our questions about what is, who is he, who are we, what are his purposes. And he unfolds that graciously and patiently, a step at a time until we get that step down. And so we come to this text asking, what is it that God would intend uh, our corporate life to be? If you're, if you're here today as a visitor, we're talking about what our corporate life here might look like next time you come back. Maybe even next week. <laughs> our, our hope is that we're moving somewhere, that we're being formed and shaped. And we invite you into that with us as we ask these questions. Lord, who are you? Who are we? And what, how do those come together? And what difference does it make for our lives here? And we're going to drill down today on just one of the verses that was read. It's verse 43. We're going we're to park there today for the time that we have. And um, unfold that, Lord willing, in some, some ways that may give some partial answers to those bigger questions. <clears throat> All of you know, certainly know the name and <clears throat> the life, something of the life of Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa was um, born uh, to Albanian parents, uh, ancestors, um, in a land uh, that uh, is marked by, was marked by war in her lifetime. But uh, what she is known for, certainly, is her work with the Sisters of, of Charity, that uh, missionaries of charity that 
that uh, she gave over 50 years of her life to. And she always wore the same thing. She traded in what she might have worn for the blue uh, dress of sorts, but it was the same thing uh, each day that you may have seen pictures of. She was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, the, most of the last years of her life, she ranked number one in terms of those who were most admired, most admired woman in the world. Most of the last years of her life. For reasons that are obvious, what she gave her life to, selflessly. But 10 years after her death in 1997, 10 years later, 2007, a book was published that were her secret letters that she kept, and then to mark the 10-year anniversary of her death um, with a long preface to explain the, the setting and the context in her life, these secret letters were published. And in those secret letters, uh, they unfolded a, uh, a soul that no one saw. Uh, she <clears throat> confided to a good friend about that time when the, when the uh, prize was offered, the Nobel Prize, Peace Prize. She said to another co-laborer, a, 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 a man that she had worked parallel with in a different part of the world, she said to uh, her friend, Jesus has a very special love for you. As for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see, listen and do not hear. What no one really knew that for the 50 years that her profile was growing, her soul was dark. In her own words, doubts, struggles. Uh, she, she spent almost 50 years of her life without sensing the presence of God in her life. How long could you go? She went 50 years. How long could you go without sensing the presence of God in your life? And some of you may be thinking, um, I've gone about as far as I can because this is real. What's real is that we often live our lives in the church with uh, a <clears throat> with some hope clinging to promises that are built around the unapparent presence of God in our lives. I mean, don't you, haven't you sometimes thought, or if not out loud, at least privately, if, why doesn't God show himself a little more blatantly? If not for my sake, for, for the world's sake. <laughs> that they would see he's for real and that he is at work. And why is, he, why is he missing in action so much of the time? Well, it didn't start with Teresa or you or me. Um, that was Job's life, much of it. David went through that. Even Jesus went through that, didn't he? Where is God in this dark moment? It's something we know about, 
John Steinbeck, writing in <clears throat> The Winter of Our Discontent, says, It's so much darker when a light goes out than it would have been if it had never shown. Wow. For some of you, that may be your story. That <clears throat> the presence of God or the light that uh, you had at one point has faded in such a way that right there with Mother Teresa and David and Job, you're asking, where is the apparent presence of God? Well, the disciples, uh, no doubt, had a set of questions like that. You remember, this is the, our context where this occurs. Where is Jesus now? He has ascended. It's after the resurrection. He has been with his disciples. He's left them. And, he, and essentially what he said is, I'm not going to go away, but I'm going to go away. <laughs> I'm, I'm leaving something, someone in my place. In fact, this is good for you because the Spirit of God is not confined to the way I am to my physical presence with you. I'm not going away, but I'm going away. And you had to imagine that some of the disciples in the aftermath of that are saying, oh, why did he have to go away? Why couldn't his unapparent presence be just a little more apparent? So this is something that we uh, recognize, something they may have certainly lived with. And it's the disciples who, with those set of questions, they're watching this redemptive story take shape. Something grand and glorious has happened. The resurrection has blown their categories. The ascended Christ, they've got a new category now. Just like you. It's a new category. It's a, it's a new dawning of the world to come has broken into this world and we have, we have pieces of that in front of us. We have demonstrations of it, but it is not here yet. And he is not here yet. And at best, at times, his presence is just unapparent. Until, until we begin to see things that we don't see on our own, until we begin to step into the story in ways that we have, maybe for some of you, yet to step. But to step into a story of redemption that is marked by the living Christ who is reigning and ruling and at work. And as we were reminded when we got to this little series, Nate rightly reminded us that Luke writes his gospel about the things that Jesus did and taught. And now when we get to Acts, Luke is still writing about the things that Jesus continues to do and say and teach. And that is still going on. It's a new category for us. And so when we think about what would we be like once we get this figured out, a little more of who God is, who we are, and his purposes, it's that God through Christ is still at work in remarkable ways. Because right here in this text, I'm going to read that verse in just a moment. It's verse 43. We're going to see a verse that describes one of the primary ways that God shows up in the early days of the church and still does today. You curious? Here it is, verse 43. And awe came upon every soul. 
and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. That's our text. And there's more than meets the eye. So let's go. I'm going to just do this in, three, in a few. We'll just ask questions uh, of the text. What are these signs and wonders? What is this awe? What is the relationship between the two? And then what does this mean for us today? That's what we're going to do with the few minutes that we have. What are these <clears throat> wonders and signs? Uh, we pick this, this picks up a phrase that you see at the very end of Mark after the resurrection. Uh, the, the, the Great Commission has been given and the work continues. Uh, and what we read in Mark 16 is, And they, the disciples, went out and preached everywhere. While the word, the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Okay, that's important. Uh, they were proclaiming the message. The what? The message. The news. The good news that God has remembered his promise to send a redeemer to rescue the hearts and lives of men and women and children to restore creation's glory, to rule over all with justice and compassion. And that's the gospel. The gospel goes forward. If you don't hear anything else today, just hear that. I hope you'll hear more. Because with that, <clears throat> with that proclamation were what Mark calls accompanying signs. For what purpose? To confirm the message. That's an important phrase. In Acts 5, you're going to see it again. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. So it wasn't just this little verse in chapter 2. It wasn't just the healing of the blind man in chapter 3. It wasn't just this or that. Many signs were done to accompany the proclamation of the gospel. <clears throat> you see, in Acts, as the story of Acts unfolds, what we find is the apostles were prophetic successors of Jesus. They took his message and it went forward, but it was being proclaimed. And Paul writes, interestingly in Romans, he said, they hear you speak, they hear Christ speak through the pro proclamation of the word. Now that's fascinating. It's not just that the sermons were about Christ. My hope is every time that Nate or I, we talk about this a lot, stand here, that we're being faithful to the gospel, faithful to the, the integrity of the word. But you know what Paul says? Something I would, would not dare to say unless he had said it. And that is there is something in the proclamation of the word where it's not just about Christ, It is Christ speaking to us. Now, for somebody that does this from time to time, that's a little nerve-wracking to think that that's what occurs. Um, so pray for me as I pray for us. But the word goes forward. And we see in Acts chapter 3 how this typically works, how the signs and the wonders and the proclamation go together. The miracle was performed in the name of Christ. You can read this later in the next chapter. There's a, the, the blind man was healed. The miracle was performed in the name of Christ, 
And there was a sermon that followed that proclaimed the significance of that name that was and offered and, the, and what followed was uh, that sermon offered the astonished bystanders forgiveness and a share in the resurrection life. That's how this operated. Signs and wonders were done that accompanied the proclamation of the gospel, forgiveness, and an invitation to share in that resur- to receive forgiveness and to share in that resurrection life. That's what we are after every Sunday when we gather here. So where are the signs and wonders? Hold on. Those are the signs and wonders that, that Luke describes. What about this awe? What is he talking about? Some translations in the footnote of my Bible and maybe yours says fear. It's where we get the word phobia. Oh, that is the word. <laughs> phobia. <laughs> but it's a reverent fear. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a congruent response to what's before you. This is a helpful way of thinking of it for me. When, when you sit down in front of a gourmet meal, one that's been prepared, you know, one of those five-course meals that are so rare for us, most of us. When you sit down in front of this gourmet meal, the way to approach that is a little different than the hot dog that came out of the microwave. You want to you wanna take this in. You're going you're gonna to savor it, and you're probably going to delight in it. That's a congruent response to the meal before you. It fits. It's in line with. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. The fear or the awe is a congruent response to the very apparent presence of God. Some of you have, um, <clears throat> have been around dignitaries. I, I guess I have. I can't recall at the moment, but... When you're around a dignitary or you're around someone of, of unique qualification, it shapes the way that you respond to them. Deference? Or maybe in this case, if it's God, with a reverent awe. Recognizing, uh, as <clears throat> this is how Jerry uh, Bridges unpacked it, he said, it's... It's reverence mingled with admiration for God's glorious attributes and amazement at his infinite love. It's reverence, admiration, and amazement all wrapped together. And that's what we begin to see right here in this passage. That's how they responded to to the presence of God that was oh so apparent. Uh, Luke describes it uh, in this very same response to Jesus himself. In Luke 5, he's talking about the crowds who just listened and watched Jesus teach and do. And he says, astonishment gripped them all. And they began to glorify God. They were filled with awe, saying, we have seen incredible things today. In chapter 7 of Luke, describing another scene, fear gripped them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has come to help his people. That's, that's what Luke is describing in Acts 2. It's a congruent response to what's before us. Okay, so what's the relation? What's the relationship between these signs and wonders and this awe? How are those connected? 
What I think Luke is driving home is that there's a relationship there. It's not just sequential. It's not first one, then the other. There's a link there, and we might call it cause and effect. Or, or better, in this case, effect and cause. He gives the effect first. That they are, they're filled with awe as the signs and wonders that accompany the proclamation of the word go forward. They're, they're staggered by what is present. And, it, and the verb tense is ongoing. It's a perfect verb tense, meaning that it's not here. It's extended. It's an ongoing sense of awe in the presence of what's before them. So here's the summary. The church experienced awe, reverent fear, in response to miracles or wonders, which served as signs of the Spirit's power and presence among them. And miracles were uh, occurring regularly. Many were being done, we read in Acts 5, and many more than the few that Luke records in detail. So they're all over the place. Okay, so what about today? What about us? Do we see that? Should we see that? Okay, dial it back in, reel back for a second. Go with me down this history of redemption story. Remember Moses? We've talked about Moses. Moses, the Red Sea, all kinds of things going on, all kinds of miracles. Got this staff that does things that no other staff will do. Moses shows up and these miracles tend to accompany the giving of God's word, Sinai. Revelation. The, we, we would rightly, I think, understand that what we call the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible, Moses has, has authored or edited those, or both. He's, he's, he writes about his own death. That was uh, somebody's editorial work. But, um, but, but there's this giving of revelation and miracles and signs and wonders accompanying, for what reason? To authenticate the message. Elijah, Elisha, there's another flurry of, of miraculous, surprising, dramatic events around what? The prophetic ministry of Isaiah and Daniel and all of those during the, uh, during the forming of the kingdom so that you see miracles and signs and wonders generally accompanying the giving of revelation, which is why as the New Testament unfolds, yep, there it is again, revelation authenticating signs and wonders. We talk about miracles today. Someone talked about the, the miracle and the time, God's timing of, of uh, someone showing up at the right time for a particular purpose or the parking spot that they needed being right there. there there's a, there is a sense of timing that we can rightly say God is at work. But, but not miracle in the same sense that Jesus turns water into wine or Lazarus being raised from the dead. There's a lot of things that go by miracles today. A narrow escape or a touchdown pass for some of us is a miracle. The timing, the providential timing, it may be that the star of Bethlehem has very natural explanations an alignment of stars or a supernova coming along at a very critical, timely moment. 
that may be what's going on there. But, but by definition, a miracle is God working against nature. And we just don't see that very often. Are there miracles today? Well, there are times where God breaks through and he surprises us. And there are things that we cannot explain. But it's right, it would be right to say that God doesn't grant miracle working powers to humans because there is no reason for that to occur in a normative way. God says in Hebrews, He spoke to us in the past through the prophets, signs and wonders, through the apostles. Signs and wonders. But he has spoken to us finally and fully in Jesus Christ. So do these signs and wonders continue for the church today? Well, so far I've said no, but now I'm about to say yes. Because there is a way. It's the same DNA. It's, the, it's with a different purpose. It's not to authenticate the message. That's been done. We have God's word. But, but a supernatural God is still at work in this day, and he's still in work in the hearts and lives of those that belong to him who by faith have received the spirit that are brought into this new thing who've been awakened from, their, from death and brought to life, and in doing so, granted a little bit of the DNA that Elijah and Moses and Peter and John and James could talk about. It's not a stretch, and I can argue that later if you want to. It's not a stretch to say that what signs and wonders occurred in Acts are a heightening of the very spiritual gifts that God continues to give today. And I say heightening on purpose. It's, it's like the things that would be normative for us today in the church, the gifts that we read about in, a few, in 1 Corinthians 12, you can also read about in uh, Romans 12 and 1 Peter 4, the gifts that God gives his church are normative. And so I'm going to argue that if you belong to Christ, you have been granted and gifted a set of gifts that are spiritual in nature. They're not natural. They're supernatural. Given to you for purposes beyond yourself, and as we just read earlier, for the common good, from the God who designed this to begin with, to shape his church, that there would be a church gathered in Franklin, Tennessee, on the corner of 3rd and Church, made up of men, women, and children who've been gifted to carry out something that when done right, when done consistently, would cause us to drop our jaws a little bit. And to recognize, wait, that's not natural. God's at work. God is at work shaping lives, forming lives. And he has given us one to another. Uh, I don't have to tell you how hard it is sometimes to kind of get out of the batter's box, to borrow an analogy, to get involved in, in the lives of others. But what... <clears throat> but what 
the design of the church is that we're involved, that God is involved with us personally and corporately. And when he's involved corporately, it means that your gifts are for her and your gifts are for him and our gifts are for one another. And when those are on display, something occurs. I'm jumping ahead a little bit just for time's sake. <clears throat> you know, the, the, the Bible doesn't say a lot about discovering those gifts. Have you noticed that? There are some lists, but it's, it's uh, remarkably uh, silent on uh, some of those things. Here is some of the best advice uh, that I've seen recently about how to do that. And I've tried a lot of different ways, and I've actually used a lot of ways with other people. There are tests you can take, kind of like aptitude tests. In fact, one group here, I helped do that you know, not long ago, just to begin to think about how has God made you. But the problem with doing it that way is it assumes you know a lot about yourself, which is for some of us a stretch. Uh, it also assumes that the gifts that are listed here line up one for one with the needs in the church, and sometimes that's not the case. But uh, some of the best advice that I've read recently came, no surprise, from a little article by Tim Keller called Discerning and Exercising Spiritual Gifts. You can see it online if, you, if you'd like. But basically, the punchline to all of that is his, his recommendation is find out what needs to be done and jump in. That, that helps you uh, <clears throat> in a couple of ways. It, it, you don't really know how God has made you until you know how God would use you. And we've, few of you have stories to tell about misunderstanding how God had made you. You don't really know. You, you might see a, a list of things that need to be done at Cornerstone, for example, and say, that's not me, that's not me, that's definitely not me. Maybe that one. And that assumes that you know really more than you may know about yourself. Uh, Tim's advice is, hey, just jump in and serve. Find out what's to be done and jump in and see what happens. Um, you, by doing so, you might discover that God has wired you in a way that you didn't know, which actually is my biography. I'll, that's another, for another day. God has made you in such a way that you may not be aware of. Uh, so jump in and serve to find out what needs to be done. But another question that goes along with that is, what's standing in the way of that? What's, what's the barrier to that right now? There are seasons to life where you can't add one more thing. I get that. Um, but there may be some things that, need, that could be removed in order to employ the gifts that God has given you that you were a steward of. God has granted those to you by design. He apportions those out just as he wills, we read. And it's for a purpose. It's for the common good. One of the things that happens when you come to Christ, when you step into the story, is you begin to think not only of yourself, but you begin to think of others and the benefit of others. And so the question looming here is, how do I spend my life in a way that's consistent with who God is, with how I've been wired, in such a way that the church grows. In fact, Paul says the best way to discern and kind of evaluate these gifts is go after the ones that are most built for the most building up of the church. 
that is, that's where we focus our energies, on the building up of the church, both in depth and in number, <laughs> uh, because the church is to grow, sinking our roots deep into Christ, into his purposes in the world, and uh, to see that church grow in number uh, as a healthy church will as we step into this together. Here's the summary, and then I'm going to land this plane. Here's what we see in this passage, that God manifests his presence in the assembled community of lives in which he dwells. Let me say that again. <laughs> when, when we gather together, God manifests his presence in ways that he doesn't until we gather. He shows up. He is at work, and, and we begin to see it. The Spirit uses our spiritual gifts to bring about the fear of the Lord in our midst, with this reverent awe of recognizing, whoa, God is at work. This word is powerful, but so are the manifest manifestations of his life in one another. We ought to be looking at each other and scratching our heads over the wonder of what we see when God is on display. And that while that's, it was true, <clears throat> particularly in the disciples in this passage, the apostles, it's true generally in the body of Christ. And that's where we plant the flag as we think about what, what is this text saying that we would be and look like as a people who've heard his voice, who've said, here I am. I'm at your disposal, no longer mine. It's not my ambition, it's not my life, it's not my purposes. Lord, it is yours. That's how Jesus responded when he couldn't, was not aware of the presence of God in his life. That was ultimately the conversation he had with himself on the cross. I'm here. It's about you and your purposes. And I give myself to you. And in doing, giving himself to his father's purposes, he gave himself for you. And he's the one resurrected, ascended. And Paul tells us in Ephesians that when he resurrected, ascended, he gave gifts to men <laughs> to be employed in this thing that we're in, pursuing him. Um, something landed in my inbox this week. It, from, all, from, from all sources, it was from a publisher talking about a, someone's new book. But my life has not been the same since I read it. Human beings are hardwired for awe. We are worshipers. We are searching for joy, hope, and fulfillment. This longing is deep in the heart of every human being. It wanders around in your soul. And whether we know it or not, that desire to be amazed, moved, and satisfied is actually a universal craving to see God face to face. You know, after I read that, and then I read about Mother Teresa. I wondered, 
Was that what was missing for her? A desire that we all have to want to see God face to face, knowing that in this world, that's not likely going to happen. But something else does. Because while we are yet to see God face to face, we have seen the, the display of his glory. It's as if we could see the outline of his face. And, and receive the benefit of being in his presence because Christ has gone there and that's what he offers to you. United to Christ by faith, we have more than a redeemer. It's not less than that, but we have more. We have one who unites us to himself. And united to Christ, what's true about Christ is true about us. The one who is the very face of God who's on display and in no greater display than the cross and the sacrament that we approach, there's where we get a glimpse of the glory of God. And our jaws would drop with a reverent awe, recognizing that God is at work. He is on display. It's not just in the autumn leaves that, that we admire. It's not only in the sacrament that we come to. Because you see, when he gives gifts, when those gifts are on display in the gathered community of God's people, the unapparent presence of God is just a little more apparent. And with that, we move to the place where it is most apparent. His sacrifice given to you. The greatest sign. The greatest wonder given to you. Received by faith as His. The one who is present with us today. Lord, would you meet us as we <clears throat> move from where we are to where you've called us to be? Would we leave here today with more of a sense? Maybe it's with this bread and wine in our hands. Maybe it's in the reality that as your word is proclaimed that you have been with us. Maybe it is in seeing the gifts being expressed through the lives of one another that we see that, that you are not absent and that there is no reason for the dark night of our soul that the gospel doesn't move in and say, look at me. Cast your gaze in this direction. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name.